Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, an injury to the spinal cord can be hugely traumatic and life changing in nature. And while inroads have been made in terms of the development of treatments, there's still a huge way to go. But what are the treatments currently in development? And are outcomes getting any better than they were 20 years ago? Well, Dr. Rory Murphy is a neurosurgeon in the Department of Neurosurgery at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. He joins us now. How are you, Rory? Before we get into the science, how did you find yourself in Phoenix? Jonathan, uh, thank you for having me on and thank you to your listeners for having me. Um, Phoenix is an exciting place, especially for the Barrow Neurological Institute. It's an excellent group of uh, neurosurgeons and neurologists who really push forward through the boundaries of care. And that's the main reason I found myself here. Tell me about um, your work and the sort of patients that you see. What, what, what causes a spinal cord injury for the most part? Well, I'm a, a neurosurgeon uh, who specializes in, in spine and spinal cord injuries. So my day-to-day involves looking after people with spine issues, um, from wear and tear, tumors, and spinal cord injuries from generally trauma from motor vehicle collisions very commonly and falls. And what we do is we try to look after, try and improve the care and improve outcomes by helping people from the time of injury all the way through their journey with their spinal cord injury. So we're looking at multidisciplinary approaches and multi-technology approaches to help and preserve the spinal cord at the time of injury and then help it recover afterwards and use other techniques to bypass an injury in the future if it hasn't recovered. Um, and that thankfully allows us to work with, we have a great team here where we can use multiple different options to help people um, through technologies. We use the term without thinking a lot, but the spinal cord, um, what is it? Is it, is it just a bunch, is a bunch of nerves going from the base of the head down to our backside? Well, the spinal cord is a complex structure made up of, in, in a simple terms, axons, which are the wires, surrounded by myelin, which is the insulation for the wires. And an injury can cause swelling, which often will improve with time, or it can cause damage to the insulation or to the myelin, which can heal slowly with time over approximately two to three years. And then it can cause damage to the actual wires themselves or the axons, which unfortunately rarely recovers. When you talk about the sort of damage, you mentioned tumors, wear and tear and trauma. Um, Is it mostly trauma that causes severe spinal cord injuries such as paraplegia? Yes, um, mainly trauma from falls and car accidents, but... As the population ages, we are getting more narrowing around the spinal cord in people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And this can cause irritation of the spinal cord and a slow-onset spinal cord injury. It's uh, almost as common as 1 in 10 people over the age of 50 will get a condition called cervical myelopathy, which is a slower-onset spinal cord injury. Wow. Um, I am really surprised that these sort of injuries don't happen more often. Given the, the sort of exploits that, uh, that people get up to, 
Who most often gets these traumatic spinal cord injuries, and why don't they happen more often? You'd think it would be quite easy to damage your spinal cord, but yet it seems to me that there aren't as many patients as there might be. In the U.S., uh, approximately 50,000 people a year will have an acute traumatic spinal cord injury. So it is pretty common. There's about 250,000 people living with a spinal cord injury, and it does lead to um, long-term challenges for people. The, there's definitely peaks in age, um, generally t- late teens and early 20s, um, mm. and then it, another peak in the 70s and 80s as people age and they start to fall more. Talk me, talk me through the, 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 the effects of having a major trauma to your spinal cord and as you say if if, if you you cut through the the spinal cord or you have something that that persists obviously you can have loss of motor function and that that varies in severity the further you get the further up you go down the spine is that correct correct so the higher up in the cervical spine or in the neck um that leads to more challenges and more problems for people with their arm and leg function and then as you go down into the thoracic and lumbar spine, you ma- maintain more function. So you keep your arm function and you keep more leg function, but it can cause bowel or bladder issues. So generally, most traumatic spinal cord, most injuries, spinal cord injuries are from trauma uh, with a fall or a motor vehicle collision. And then it causes either a fracture or a movement of the bones or a blood clot or hematoma that presses on the spinal cord. So for most people, um, they may have a fall or uh, an accident, they will have neck pain or back pain and weakness. And obviously we preserve the airway, breathing circulation, do immediate first aid, um, keep them immobile. And then what we found is decompressing the spinal cord or taking the pressure off the spinal cord is very important in improving long-term outcomes. So the time, the optimal time is is debated, but generally if you can take the pressure off the spinal cord within eight hours of the injury, people do better. And they've shown that in the University of California, San Francisco, where they operated within 12 hours of the injury. Less than 24 hours after injury also gives a lot of benefit. So here we educate paramedic crews and we educate fire crews on getting them to the hospital quickly. We get them Mm. stabilized quickly, bring them to the operating room or the theater straight away, decompress the spinal cord, stabilize them. And that leads to better outcomes uh, long term. After that, then we have a number of different options drug trials or medications to help the spinal cord injury uh, spinal cord after an injury haven't been very successful so far um, but there are mm. some new drugs that are potentially going to come out or being trialed in the next couple of years that may have benefit but here what we are doing as part of a large multi-center trial across the US uh, we're using sy- systemic hypothermia or basically we're cooling a patient down very quickly. Why would you do that? Well, um, hypothermia um, or cooling helps preserve helps preserve uh, tissue. So right. it's been well shown in cardiac surgery, uh, uh, aortic surgery, and in pediatric surgery to be helpful. For the spinal cord, what it does is it reduces the metabolic demand of the spinal cord immediately after the injury. 
it helps reduce inflammation, cytokine uh, release, and in the spinal cord specifically, uh, glutamate toxicity, all things that can damage the axons. And by, so, so you're talking about sort of slowing down the process that leads to cell death. And of course, that's what you don't want. Exactly. And by cooling the patient down to approximately 33 degrees very soon after the injury, and we can actually reduce that injury, the, the ways that the cells are injured. What about um, the patients who are uh, uh, currently living with this uh, severed cord that uh, it's too late to prevent the damage that damage has been done. Why are we not there yet when uh, we we talk about uh, interfaces between those two ends of the cord? Why have we not found a way to electrically pass the information from one part of the cord down to the bottom? Um, That seems to me like that would be uh, a way we could get around it or, or perhaps bypass the break in the spinal cord by hijacking other nerves. Where are we with that sort of technology? Well, that's a great question, Jonathan. Actually, we're making great strides on that front. Um, So as part of the Obama Brain Initiative led by the National Institute of Health, a lot of money was invested in essentially bypassing the injury and using brain-computer interfaces and external stimulators to help bypass over the injured spinal cord. And now we're starting to see the fruits of all that research work in the form of uh, smaller private companies like Synchron, which is using a small stent that can be placed minimally invasively into the brain and then take signals out of the brain and use those to interface with a external system on the arm. Or uh, Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink is another example, but there are others, including Kernel. So we're really, in the next two or three years, we're going to see huge changes in how we can help people approximately two to three years after a spinal cord injury if they're not showing signs of improvement in hand, arm, or leg function. You talked about brain-computer interfaces there, that that someone would have essentially some sort of a a chip in their brain and the the readout of that would then be used um, to stimulate function. Are you talking about function in a human arm or uh, a robotic arm? Um, I remember there was a a patient, Kathy Hutchison, I think her name was, that that was able to control a robotic arm using a a brain implant. Are you you talking about a, a device that could actually... M- motor the the human arm yes um, both have been done um as part of the wow. uh, the brain initiative a very courageous and hard-working person called ian burkhardt who had a spinal cord injury from a dive into a pool uh, had a severe c5 c6 injury with limited hand function so he had a utah array which is a type of brain implant placed with a brain gate device and then was able to use that to control his arm through an external stimulator. And we're going to move on to the next stage here at the Barrow. And we're working with a spin-off of that group, uh, Neurolutions, which is from Northwell Health in New York and uh, the Goodwell Shepherd Group uh, in Pennsylvania, a large spinal cord injury research institute. We're working on a trial where we're going to put a stimulator on the arm and we can use different inputs so we can use if a person has some biceps or function they can sense that and then use that to stimulate through neuromuscular stimulation 
different muscles and nerves in the forearm and that can then control the hand. One of the issues with with doing something like that is that, of course, the order in which we clench our fists, we activate um, without thinking so many different clusters of uh, nerves and muscles in a very specific order. Tying that to um, uh, some sort of digital apparatus that needs to know which muscles to fire and when could prove very tricky, right? Is, is Is that a problem? It is a problem, but it's surmountable. Uh, with AI technology and talented engineering, um, we can do it. And so we're enrolling our first number of patients to do that at the moment and use the signals, learn from the signals, and then with the patient, basically train on it over time. And so then when they want to do a certain task or a certain movement, the system will be able to predict that and help them do it. Realistically, though, right at the moment, Rory, are are patients doing much better post-trauma than they were 20 years ago? Or if you bang your back in the wrong place at the wrong time, do you pretty much always end up in the wheelchair? No, people are doing far better than before. By early intervention, doing surgery earlier, we can increase the chance of being able to walk after a spinal cord injury by 50%. Uh, so just even just doing surgery earlier helps. And then using other techniques, um, the hypothermia may help as well, improve outcomes. It helped for uh, Kevin Everett, the uh, Buffalo Bills player. That was, he was the first person who underwent it and during, he had a on-field or on-pitch injury and underwent hypothermia and made a quite a good recovery. He was quadruparetic and now is walking. He, he does have some... Wow some uh, problems he's not walking perfectly but he is walking and living life he's not back playing but he's doing very well so after a a spinal cord injury people are doing better with the better surgical techniques the better long-term rehab and these new assistive devices and bypass procedures that we can do what are nerve transfers and how do they work well when we first see a person we operate on them decompress the spinal cord, we then follow them for six to 12 months and we see how they're improving. And often we'll see a lot of improvement, but some areas may not fully improve. And to regain hand function, we have some nice new techniques that have been developed over the past 10 years where we can take a nerve where there's two nerves, especially going to the biceps, take one of the nerves and then move it over to innovate a nerve that controls the hand or the thumb and then that slowly heals and grows into the other nerve and allows you to regain some thumb function and grip strength which can be which can be very helpful um the most recent paper was in the lancet uh two years ago where they looked at approximately 30 patients in Australia and they did nerve transfers on one arm and tendon transfers in the other arm. They found good benefit to both. Uh, the nerve transfers are slightly more natural and heal- people said that the movement was easier for them, uh, but it was very helpful for those Australian patients. It's absolutely amazing work that you're doing and, and fascinating to hear about it. Uh, Dr. Rory Murphy, neurosurgeon at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, Jonathan, and thank you to your listeners too. 
Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.